All right, as was mentioned earlier, Pastor Nick is, uh, if you're visiting with us or just don't know, Pastor Nick is still in Nigeria. He'll actually be heading back tomorrow night, I believe. So let's be in prayer for his travels and that there's much fruit that comes from his trip these past couple of weeks. If you would uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, and we're also going to go to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33, so kind of earmark Luke chapter 14 as well. The title of this sermon is Leaving the Dead, Following Where Jesus Leads. Our key words for our worshipers in training are follow, disciple, and leave. There's a song, and I think the title is, or at least the chorus, goes like this, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Now, if you think that uh, it's Alison Krauss that sung that, you'd be partly right, um, the bluegrass singer. Actually, over my uh, intense research, which is 10-second Google search, I found out that it was actually Loretta Lynn that sang that song to begin with. If you don't know who that is, she was a country singer back when country music actually existed. So um, now that I've made some of you mad, uh, the, the, but the, I think the, the sentiment still is correct. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. So what, what does it mean today in America to identify ourselves as a Christian? What does that mean? What does that mean in Rinkin, Georgia, or in Effingham County, or Pooler, wherever you are, to identify yourself as a Christian? I think, I think if we think about it a little bit, it means almost nothing today to identify yourself as a Christian. Let's look at some statistics. Almost four out of five people in America identify themselves as Christian. But less than one-half of those people, actually less than 40%, can be found in church or any given Sunday. They just don't go to church. Less than one-half of these people believe the Bible is accurate, that it's truthful in what it tells us. So basically the majority have no biblical worldview whatsoever. Now the, this survey went further and distinguished born-again, people that say they're born-again Christians. Don't know how, you know, how that really works. But these are people that say they've ex- actually accepted Jesus as their Savior and that he is their, he is their Savior. Of those people, about, of the four, four out of five, about half consider themselves born again, but their lifestyle is undistinguished generally from non-Christians. Here's some of the things that these people that say they're born-again Christians believe. The most damning of them is many think that works can earn a place in heaven. Some of them think that Christians worship the same God as Muslims and that Jesus sinned. Now, there's either one of two options here, probably. One is that Christians are just not that different from the rest of the world, or two, there are a whole lot of people who think they are Christians, but they're not. They culturally identify as Christians, but biblically, based on what the Bible teaches us, they are not really followers of Christ. And this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Matthew 7, Jesus said that this would happen. 
He said many would come and say, look at all these things I've done for you, all these miracles I've done in your name. And Jesus would say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So what I, want to look like, what I want to look at this morning is what does it mean biblically to be a follower of Jesus? And I want us to look at a couple of examples in God's word where Jesus addresses the nature of what it looks like to follow him. Specifically, we're going to look at the cost of following Jesus in these two verses that I mentioned earlier. And the question we need to ask is, and we should be asking this every time we come to God's word, is what is God saying to us? Because we are his people, and we should obey his word no matter what he is saying. So, as Jesus traveled throughout Israel, he urged people to repent and believe the gospel. But follow me was a constant refrain in his message as well. At the beginning of his ministry, he called his first disciples with a somewhat abrupt command. He said, drop what you're doing, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. As his ministry progressed, he told the crowds, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Mark eight thirty four. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he recommissioned the repentant Peter with the words, follow me, in John twenty one nineteen. So I don't know if you've ever probed the meaning of this phrase, but we all should really look at it because it can lead to a profound transforming change in how you think about and live the Christian life. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Let's look at Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me, go, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now we're introduced here by Matthew to two men who express an interest in becoming a disciple or a follower of Jesus. I'll use those words pretty much interchangeably. And our primary interest is really not in these two men or what they say, well, somewhat in what they say, but mainly in what Jesus says to them. I wanna, we're going to talk about three things uh, in his response. I'm not going to go point by point, but I'm going to talk about these generally. Number one is his abrupt challenge to any easy understanding of Christian discipleship or of the Christian life. Number two, the demand that Jesus makes on his followers. And number three, the radical change in lifestyle that followers of Jesus undergo. Let's look at verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. So here in verse 18, this is before Matthew has really formally introduced the 12 disciples. But there already seems to be a group of people different from the crowd who are following him that it seems very natural for him to give instructions to. He basically is telling them what to do. And we're picking up in chapter 8 where Jesus has been very busy. He's been cleansing people from leprosy. He's been healing the servant of the centurion who had great faith. He's just healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's been busy healing many who were oppressed by demons and just 
all kinds of various sick people. In the process, he's been fulfilling the prophet Isaiah who spoke of the Messiah, that he would take our illnesses and bear our diseases. So it's not too surprising that Jesus was tired, and he was kind of ready to get away from all these people. And head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's heading to the kind of southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, away from where they are now. Um, it's on the other side of the lake from Capernaum, which is, this other side is largely a non-Jewish area called the Decapolis. There's a lot of Greeks there. And this would seem like somewhat of a foreign journey, and none of the Jewish crowds outside of his disciples would likely desire or be able to go with him there. But these two men express an interest in following Jesus as he is separating himself from the crowds. And though the text calls them disciples, nothing in the context here suggests that they'll become part of the 12 disciples. And we don't know if either of them ever actually followed Jesus after his somewhat shocking response to their initial enthusiasm. So let's look at that response. Verses 19 through 20. And the scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now the first uncommon thing here is that this is a scribe expressing an interest to follow Jesus. Unlike most scribes that we see in Matthew, this one, at least for the moment, he's in favor of Jesus. Most of the scribes are not in favor of Jesus. But we have hints that this scribe, despite his enthusiasm, does not speak as a true disciple. He calls Jesus teacher. Uh, This is a form of address that in Matthew, though not in Mark, but in Matthew is only used by people outside of Jesus' group. Never did one of his disciples in Matthew call him teacher. And it's, it's except for one, which was Judas Iscariot, who twice used the Jewish equivalent. He called him rabbi is the Jewish version of teacher. So I want to read a fairly lengthy quote by John Calvin, but it's really good. Calvin says, We must bear in mind that he was a scribe who had been accustomed to a quiet and easy life. He, he had enjoyed honor and was ill-fitted to endure reproaches, poverty, persecutions, and the cross. He wishes indeed to follow Christ, but dreams of an easy and agreeable life and of dwellings filled with every convenience, whereas the disciple, disciples of Christ must walk among thorns and march to the cross amidst uninterrupted afflictions. The more eager he is, the less he is prepared. He seems as if he wished to fight in the shade and at ease, neither annoyed by the sweat or, the, or by dust, and beyond the reach of the weapons of war. There is no reason to wonder that Christ rejects such persons, for as they rush on without consideration, they are distressed by f- the first uneasiness of any kind that occurs, lose courage at the first attack, give way, and ba- basely desert their post. Besides, this scribe might have sought a place in the family of Christ in order to live at his table without expense and to feed luxuriously without toil. 
and this, this is the main application for us. Let us therefore look upon ourselves as warned in his person, not to boast lightly and at ease that we will be the disciples of Christ while we are taking no thought of the cross or of afflictions. But on the contrary, to consider early what sort of condition awaits us. The first lesson which he gives us on entering his school, he being Jesus, is to deny ourselves and take up his cross, Matthew sixteen twenty four. So it was common in Jesus' day for scribes to choose the rabbi or teacher that would provide them the best benefits, like the best standing in the community or the most prestige. That's how normally a scribe would figure out who they were going to follow or, or, or learn from. But this is the exact opposite of what we have seen in Jesus' ministry, as Jesus is the one who calls his disciples to drop whatever they're doing and follow him. We see in Matthew 4 and 9 and all over the New Testament that Jesus did the choosing then, and Jesus still does the choosing today. He still chooses those who will follow him. But the main point in Jesus' response is that it assumes that the scribe has not thought out the commitment and the cost involved in discipleship. And it suggests that he's actually unlikely to be willing to face it. Though it's possible the scribe was referring to Jesus' immediate trip across the lake, I'm going to follow you across the lake. Jesus' reply here, it's most likely referring to a lifestyle that would be facing a committed, long-term follower of Jesus. It very much seems like the scribe was a self-seeker, and ultimately, self-seekers are rejected by Christ. So let's look at the next person, verse 21 through 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now here, a second potential follower of Jesus is met by really an even more off-putting demand from Jesus. The phrase, another of the disciples, suggests that both of these potential followers are in some sense associated with Jesus somehow and, and are kind of understood as being, you know, one of the people following him. This one even uses, this, this disciple even uses the more committed term of Lord instead of teacher. He calls Jesus Lord. But even so, there's nothing to indicate that either of these men, again, became part of the 12 disciples. Matthew, like Luke, tends to use the word disciple sometimes in more of a broad sense and he even uses it sometimes as uh, potential followers of Jesus, he calls disciples. A person who is thinking about leaving the crowd in order to travel with Jesus. But Jesus' response is designed to draw out the radical, life-changing implications of such a commitment to him. Now, when most of us read this verse, we think that this man really just needs to go bury his father. And we understand it as an immediate and pressing responsibility that he has. That he's got to go and arrange a funeral for his father who had apparently just died. Now, burial in a Jewish, Jewish culture usually takes place within 24 hours of death. So he would not be asking for a long postponement to follow Jesus. Though there are other burial-related ceremonies that could take up to a week. Uh, arrangements for the funeral of a parent usually fell to the eldest son, and according to Jewish custom, 
This took priority of any other commitment that they had. Even the most important prayers could be set aside to bury your parent. Now, this request would seem entirely reasonable, wouldn't it? He could quickly catch up with Jesus as soon as he had fulfilled these responsibilities. So that seems to be his intention from his use of the word first. But Jesus' refusal to allow such an essential family duty would have been shocking to the Jewish people that heard that. And there's a good reason to believe, I think, that this shock comes from more of a Western or non-Middle Eastern understanding of the text. Just think about it. If the father had just died, the son would not be out and about with Jesus. He would be keeping vigil and preparing for a funeral. A Middle Eastern understanding of the phrase to bury one's father is a standard idiom or phrase for fulfilling one's responsibility as a son for the remainder of the father's lifetime with no prospect of death in the near future. So this would then be a request for an indefinite postponement of following Jesus, likely a matter of years rather than days before he could follow him. Now this makes Jesus' response a little less shocking to us, and the man's proposal of discipleship probably not as serious as it first seems. But even though it is less shocking to us, it would still cut deep into a Jewish culture that is rooted in these family obligations. And Jesus' words that it would be the dead who carried out these duties is still somewhat of a shocking thing to say. And most likely here, Jesus is rebuking this man and his talk about the dead burying their own dead is to be understood metaphorically as a way to say, don't worry about waiting around for your father to die. If you truly desire to follow me, you would set these matters behind you and focus on me. Jesus is forcefully and bluntly starting to redefine the family of God with him as the head of that family. Now, Jesus' cultural insensitivity emphasizes the radical newness and overwhelming importance of the kingdom of heaven. Even the most basic family ties cannot be used as an excuse to not follow the Savior and to ignore the message of the kingdom. Namely, repent and follow Jesus. Now, compared with those who have found life in the kingdom of heaven, those who are outside of it, Jesus calls them dead. And we're, we're, we're used to that terminology. But his point here is that a, a disciple's business is to promote life and not hide behind and wallow in death. Now, Jesus' reply is clear, and again, it's somewhat shocking, especially to a Jew. Now, at this time, it is a refusal to allow the disciple an out so to speak, and allow his family duties to take priority or be used as an excuse to take priority over his discipleship and his following of Jesus. So let me be clear. Jesus is not commanding the dishonoring of, the dead, of a dead father or telling us that we abandon or ignore our true family responsibilities. But he is teaching the ultimate priority of discipleship above the proper and desirable family duties here of a burial. And Jesus is in no way teaching him to disregard the commandment to honor your father and mother since elsewhere he 
completely endorses it, specifically in chapters 15 and 19. But what we are seeing here is a clear example of Jesus having authority, not like their scribes. Remember, we looked at that uh, last, last time I preached, I believe, Matthew seven twenty nine. They heard his teaching. It was like none other. He had more authority than the scribes. And his blunt words here would be like splashing water on their face, cluing them in that the kingdom of heaven, and I quote R.T. France here, the kingdom of heaven apparently involves a degree of fanaticism which is willing to disrupt the normal rhythms of social life. I want, to, I want to read that again. The kingdom of heaven is apparently involves a degree of fanaticism which is willing to disrupt the normal rhythms of social life. Now, I want us to put ourselves in the place of those people that were there and heard Jesus. And I want us, I want us, I want to stop for a second and pause and and just ask, how would you respond to Jesus here? Do you believe this book right here is the word of God? When it says something shocking, do you believe it? Now, my, my belief is that this teaching has radical implications for our lives and the lives of our church. Let's look at Luke 14, chapter, uh, chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. I'm going to read these and then comment, make some comments on them. We're not going to go verse by verse. This is a somewhat parallel passage to what we just looked at in Matthew. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I would summarize that section of Scripture that the gospel demands radical sacrifice. Now we aren't here, I'm not here for me or for whoever's preaching at other times to tell you what to do. That's, that's not what I'm about. I, I'm not here to give you a spiritual to-do list for you to check off. But I want you to take these words this morning and, and, and every time we come to God's word and be driven to the spirit of God. We really need to wrestle with God in prayer on how he desires to transform and change us in a way that will have external ramifications 
but they start with an internal change. Our internal change, when God works in us, should have external ramifications. We cannot bypass spending time with God and dive into prayer with God. We need to wrestle with God on how this applies to your life and my life. We need the lies and the falsehoods that we tell ourselves every day exposed by the truth of, truth of God's word. And we need his spirit to even begin to do this work. So my question for you and for me this morning is, are you willing to come to Jesus on his terms? Now, can you imagine standing in that, in that crowd that we just heard Jesus in Luke 14? Can you imagine standing in that crowd at that time, in that place? I mean, I can just think of people standing there saying, what does, who does this guy think he is? I'm supposed to hate everyone that I care about? I'm supposed to pick up a cross, an instrument of torture, and follow him? And I can only think about how, how I would have responded there. It can be a little bit of a scary thought. And, and think about it. This is how Jesus introduced himself to people for the first time. This these are first-time visitors he's talking to right here, telling them to hate everyone they love. These are, these are seekers, if you want to call them that. This is an elementary, basic truth of what it means to follow Jesus. This is an evangelistic text for Jesus, to hate everyone that you love. Now, the picture's clear. These are basic requirements for discipleship, for anybody who wants to follow Jesus. We can look at this and say, oh, well, this is just for the 12 disciples, or this is from a, for a super Christian, or this is just for a pastor or missionary. But this is for any true believer and follower of Jesus. Now, our particular application is going to be different. But that is not an excuse for us to ignore what Jesus is telling us here. And this should really make us ask the question, have we ever really come to Jesus on his terms? And we need to consider this. No matter how long you've gone to church or checked off you know, the to-do list, we need, to, we need to ask ourselves this. Have we come to Jesus on his terms? Now, Jesus requires superior love. That's what Luke, I think, 1426 is getting at. And this is a strong, hard statement. Uh, you know, I thought we were supposed to love people. So what does this mean? There's a huge temptation here to soften Jesus' words, to say, to justify the way we live, right? Oh, he didn't mean that. He didn't mean that. He, meant, he didn't mean that. He meant something completely different. So we, gotta, we have to look at these verses honestly and within context. So one of my favorite verses are Matthew 22, 36 through 39. And this is where the, the scribe lawyer guy came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the God, Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all all. God is everything, and he requires all of us. He is primary. He is supreme. He is superior. When love for God is supreme in your life, love for others naturally follows. 
Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So love for Jesus is to be supreme, so high, so pure, so primary that any other love is so far less it looks like hate. Now it doesn't say in these verses not to love, but that we love Jesus more. But conversely, in per Luke 14, in comparison to Christ, we hate the people we love. But the reality is also that when we have the love of Christ in our hearts, the love that we show others is the love of Christ. But this will only happen when your love for Christ is supreme in your life. Christ must be superior and supreme in our hearts. I'm afraid that all too often we don't have this kind of love because we cut ourselves off from the one who supplies it. We are not following Jesus in his footsteps, but running away from him, just like Jonah. Lord, you don't want me to do that, do you? Go where? Help who? Share the gospel with someone? Well, you know, I'd love to, but I've got other stuff to do. I have to go bury the dead. Spend an hour reading and meditating your word and in prayer soaking up your word. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd like to, but I've got so many other things to do. You know, Lord, I need downtime. I, need, I just need to watch TV or my tablet or my smartphone. I know I, I need to do that. So the, the last thing I, I'm, I'm trying to do this morning is guilt anyone into checking off boxes or this to-do list. But, but this, is, this, is, this is important. Following Christ does not consist of begrudging, half-hearted, reluctant obedience to Christ. It just doesn't. That is not biblical Christianity. And that's no way to love your Savior. Biblical Christianity sees the supremacy of Christ and is so drawn to him that our love draws us to him. It draws us to obedience. It draws us to follow him. And it changes our perspective on everything that we do in this life. Do you love and want Christ? Is he the reason you live? This is the picture we are given in Matthew 8 and Luke 14. Now, this may be a shocking quote, but, but David, I want to read a quote from David Platt. He said, I'm convinced that in our culture today, we, we idolize our children and our marriages and sex and relationships, parents, families, and friends to the point where Jesus Christ gets the leftovers of our affection, and it's unchristian. You forsake all relationships in favor of an intimate relationship with him. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I want to look at uh, an example of someone in church history. How, what does this look like practically, right? And you may not think this is practical, but I want to look at, just for a second, John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a preacher. He lived in a time when it was not easy to be a follower of Christ, especially to be a preacher. And I don't know what's going to happen, but we may see that again in our lifetime where it's not easy to be a follower of Christ. He preached, and he was told that if you don't stop, you're going to be imprisoned. Well, no big deal. Well, he and his family, they were not very well off. 
They had one blind child. They barely had enough to eat and live on. He knew that if he went to prison, it could bring great harm on his family. Now, what do you do when you're faced with that decision? Do you keep preaching or do you stop? Well, John Bunyan said, no, he will absolutely keep preaching. And he went to jail. And he wrote this from his jail cell. The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. It hurt. It was costly. And that not only because I am fond of these great mercies, that being his family, but also because I've often brought to my mind the many hardships and miseries and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer to my heart than all I have besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I have thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces, but yet I must venture all with God. Oh, I have seen in this condition, I am like a man pulling down his house on the head of his children. Yet though I must do it, I must do it. Jesus requires, and he demands superior love. Jesus also requires exclusive loyalty. He said, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross was for convicted criminals. They were convicted to die. You, you all know that. This is the equivalent of saying, if you do not pick up your electric chair or your lethal chemical injection, you cannot follow Jesus. Now, if you're carrying a cross, you're like a dead man walking. There's nothing else you can do that is for yourself. This is the picture Jesus gives us as his followers. We die to the life we used to live. According to scripture, you are dead to yourself, dead to your selfish desires, dreams, hopes, plans, ideas. You live for Christ and according to Christ. Now, this should change our priorities. This should change what is important to you. And Jesus ultimately determines what is important to you. Now, we also see in these verses, verse 28, talks about counting the cost. I'm not going to go into that in the detail. In verse 31 in Luke 14, he talks about warriors fighting in a battle and about the king. And he, and he asks, how do we sacrifice to win this war? And this is the wartime versus peacetime mentality. And do you want to get into the battle? Or do you want to sit back and let others fight it for you? In verse 33, Jesus says, if, if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. This is about a total loss. To follow Christ, we give up everything we have. What do we give up? Is everything we have given to Jesus for the sake of the kingdom, the lost, the poor? Now, everybody knows, and we talk about this a lot, we're inundated by stuff. We're, we're just a, a rich, rich people. But our, our, our culture and our, our flesh tells us the more the better. The more stuff we can get, the better. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail of that, but Jesus did not come and call us to live a stuff-centered Christianity but to renounce that and follow him, not our stuff and not our pleasures. Now, look, I'm not saying that 
Jesus is saying that we can't enjoy blessings. I'm not, not saying that material blessings from him can't be enjoyed. I'm not saying that at all. But we are tempted, I think we would all agree, that we're tempted to live our lives revolving around our stuff and our entertainment and our relationships, even, as Jesus said, family relationships. And this flies in direct contradiction to what Jesus has told us in these verses. And the point is, nothing is going to satisfy our ultimate need except Jesus Christ. Our ultimate need is for a restored, ongoing, active relationship with the triune God based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, his Son. And if we have that relationship, we'll serve him and follow him, and he will be our first priority. Now, why do we hate the people most important to us? Because Jesus is superior love. He is the only one worthy of superior love. And you know what? He can require sacrifice on our part because he sacrificed everything for us and on our behalf. He is our ultimate reward. Last verse, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, finishing up, my question for you is, have you come to Jesus on his terms? Not my terms, not your terms, not your granddaddy's terms or your preacher growing up or the preacher on TV, but his terms that he lays out in his word. Have, you, have your affections changed Godward to Christ? Now, I pray that the Spirit of God is opening our eyes to abandon everything for Christ. Only, only the Spirit of God can do this. Christ is supreme. Are you his disciple this morning? Are you following his steps? Do you run to Christ for all your needs? Do you hate everything else compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ? Have you counted the cost and abandoned everything for Christ and are walking in joyful obedience? This is the biggest, most important question of our lives. There's nothing, there's nothing more important than this. The alternative to following Jesus ultimately is hell. Eternal punishment in hell. If you're not following Jesus here this morning, that's your destination. But I ask everyone here to consider the cost. Jesus said, "Repent, follow me, go where I go, do what I do, count the cost." But he is totally and supremely and infinitely worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son who loved us so much. that He suffered the pain, the torture of the cross on our behalf. Father, these aren't easy words to read this morning. These aren't easy words to understand. And by no means do I have all the answers. But I pray, God, very earnestly that your spirit would be in wor at work in our hearts, in our minds, that you would impress, of a, impress upon us what it means in each one of our lives to follow you, to count the cost to pick up 
our cross and follow you, the one true living God who deserves and is worthy of our worship, of our stuff, and ultimately of our very lives. Lord, you are good to us. You are gracious to us. You are merciful to us. Please use your word to change us and to conform us more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' very powerful name that we pray. Amen.